Welcome to Launchpad, the unique radio show and podcast that celebrates new book releases and the authors that created them. Now, let's take off with your host, Grace Salmon. This is Launchpad. Welcome to this very special episode on behalf of myself, Grace Salmon, and Mary Helen Sheriff, the author marketing coach. On episode 16, we are very lucky to have with us the part of the Paper Lantern Writers. We have Edie Kay, Rebecca DeHarling, C.V. Lee, and Linda Eulisite. Today, we're going to be talking about historical fiction, feminist romance, pugilism, Amsterdam's Golden Age and map making, betrayal, roses and rebels, and the American frontier. If you are joining us live, welcome very much to our show. Please feel free to leave comments and questions. We will be happy to answer them. Please engage with our audience as well. So on behalf of all of us, welcome to the Launchpad microphone. Thank you. Hello. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I'm particularly excited about today because I love it when the authors on our show are already connected. We build connections throughout the show anyway, but you folks are connected through your writing collaborative. Linda, would you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, we are members of Paper Lantern Writers, which is a marketing collective for historical fiction authors. We're about three years old, a little over three years old now, and our goal is to help each other market our books. And in the process, we've become pretty good friends. That's fabulous. And you can just, in the green room before, for those of us who are listening now, we just had wonderful banter back and forth about festivals and awards. So on that note, Edie, I'd love you to start. You have an award-winning book. Tell us about your new book, Vice Counts Vengeance, and yes. tell us about you. All right. So my name is Edie Kay. Um, I am the author of the award-winning series, uh, <laughs> When the Blood is Up. Uh, this most recent book is A Viscount's Vengeance. It is book four in the series and the penultimate. It starts uh, with A Lady's Revenge is the first book in the series. And in all the books have a feature of boxing, women's boxing during the Regency time period. So I've done quite a bit of research on women's boxing over that time period. And I've also started to speak in different places around the world about it, which has been fantastic because one of the things that I like to write about are real things that we have for whatever reason in our collective mind erased from history. And one of those things is women who use their bodies in an athletic way. And we think that that's somehow new uh, because women's boxing actually did not make it to the Olympics until 2012, but it happened. The best boxer of the 18th century was in fact a woman in the 1720s. It was her heyday and she influenced the sport of boxing in a way that no one else did. I have to admit that I never heard about <laughs> women's boxing in any um, constructive, positive deep way until I began to explore today's episode. So thank you for bringing that to it as well as your award-winning books. Rebecca, please tell us about your The Map Colorist. Oh, it looks like Rebecca may have frozen. Does anybody else have a frozen Rebecca? I do. Uh, I'm back. Sorry. Oh, there we go. That's okay. Welcome back. Rebecca has written a book called The so Map just Colorist. So answer the question Edie answered. Yes. yes. Tell us about your book. Uh-oh. 
Okay, we're going to skip Rebecca for now, but we're so excited that she's here. And let's go right away to CV Lee, who's also known as Charity with Token of Betrayal. And she has another book coming out, um, I think it's in July. Yes, I have the sequel to Token of Betrayal um, coming out in July. It's called Betrayal of Trust. And um, this series is set on the Isle of Jersey, which is just off of the coast of France. And um, it begins about the same time as the War of the Roses is heating up. And it starts right when Henry VI is ousted and Edward IV comes in. And so my book is about the French occupation of Jersey during that time which happened right about the same time and is a very much a result of the War of the Roses. So and this is a family saga. So it is a family saga? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this first book is going to be the, the father and then the son, and then there's going to be a third one, which will be the grandson. And did you know that going in? Yes, I did. I've been planning to write this book for more than 20 years. <laughs> well, the story of 1461 is coming forward now. Let's go back to Rebecca for a minute and see if we have Rebecca live. Did she find a happy place to tell yes, us about I the map? Yes, I apologize color? about that. Sorry. Technical difficulties um, happen. <laughs> so um, my book that will be coming out in September is called The Map Colorist. I don't have the book yet, so here's the what Beautiful. the cover looks like. So um, I It's set in 1660 Amsterdam. My first novel, The Lines Between Us, was set at the same time period in Spain. And for my second book, for some reason, I decided I wanted to have a woman involved with cartography, some, doing something unusual, cartography. And um, thought, oh, I can stay in Spain. Surely they had, you know, maps were really big. They were all over the world. Well, Amsterdam was the capital of map printing at that time. So switch switch settings and uh you know as i think happens to a lot of historical fiction authors the more research i did the more the clearer my story became so i i real i found out that <clears throat> there was something called the atlas mayor which was the largest publication of the century um multiple volumes of maps and there were people who at home colored maps for people in watercolor um, so there was my character, the map colorist. And then I found out that some of the maps in the Atlas Mayor were not attributed. So when I found that in the book, I, I wrote I wrote down on the, the research book I was doing, this is it. So I verified um, with a couple of people that the map is still unattributed. And that became the map that my character creates. Oh, fascinating. That's so cool. So eager to hear more about that. As are our listeners, many of our listeners uh, knew nothing about boxing, so they're fascinated by that, nor did they know anything about Jersey. And I love that we now have map colorists as well. Last but not least, Linda Ulysite, tell us about The River Remembers. All right, well, this is my third book that I would call heritage fiction. But all my books start with a family ancestor of mine. This one, uh, somewhere on my genealogy, I had a note 
that I had an ancestor who was born at Fort Snelling in Minnesota in 1835. And I remember thinking, hmm, that's pretty early for a family to be at a fort. And I thought, I need to research this. So my research uncovered that Fort Snelling was quite the happening place in 1835. It was the Northwestern outpost that everybody who was going anywhere north and west went through Fort Snelling. And those people include uh, Zachary Taylor, who of course would become president, his daughter, Sarah, who eloped with Jefferson Davis, who was, of course, become the Confederate um, president. Uh, they eloped because Jefferson Davis was working for her father and her father didn't approve of her marrying a soldier. Other people that are involved, like uh, Seth Eastman from Eastwood Kodak was in the area. Abraham Lincoln was in the area. George Catlin, who is a famous painter of Native Americans, was in the area. And I'm thinking, man, everybody was there. I mean, even Eliza Hamilton shows up. <laughs> so I was like, man, I gotta write this story. Everybody who's anybody is in Fort Snelling at that time. So my story centers on three female protagonists. One is my ancestor, Samantha, who is a white settler. One is Daysets, who is the uh, half-breed daughter of the Indian agent and the Dakota chief. And the other is Harriet Robinson, who is the slave who marries Dred Scott the following year at the fort. Well, I just got a whole American history lesson. In I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> There's my book. It's in the poster in the back of me too, but that's the cover of the book. That is wonderful. Um, I want to go back to Edie for a minute. How did you get interested in boxing and women boxing, particularly like in that period of time? So <clears throat> I have, I have been writing for a very long time. And I thought I was going to go the route of literary fiction. And I got an MFA in creative writing. And I have several novels sitting in my computer still. And I just wasn't going anywhere with them. Um, I would always get really good comments from agents and things that they would say, oh, this is really well written, but mm, the story is not, not moving fast enough and things like that. So as an exercise, I thought, well, I should start writing something that has a very clear plot line so that I can't get lost anywhere. And so I started looking into different genres. I am not much of a murder mystery person. That's just, I, the killing of people is even, even when it's off page, I still don't really care for it. So uh, I looked at romance and I had a friend who her college best friend uh, is actually a very famous now uh, historical romance writer at the time she was still up and coming. And so I started reading her books and then I found Courtney Milan and a couple of other uh, historical romance writers. I still wanted to write historical fiction and I found their books to be so much more than what I believed. I had really bought into the MFA programs uh, poo-pooing of romance as an entire genre. And, and it was just so wrong. <laughs> they're so deep and they're so big and they have such big, huge ideas. And the only thing that is different about them from literary fiction is that, you know, in the end, the woman gets to win. Whereas in so many other books, the women by definition has to lose in order for it to be realistic. And I hate that. I hate that. Um, I want my heroines because of all the travails that they have to go through. I want them to win. That's where they should be. Well, and as a reader, we want your heroines to win too, because they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I started doing that. I wrote a Regency romance that I really didn't like because I didn't care for how 
I don't know, constrained. And I had the side character that was doing something. And I was like, what is she doing over there? And it was Lydia. And she had just, um, I apologize for uh, swearing, but she just said resting bitch face like constantly. And I loved it. And I was like, yes, where, where else can we get that? I was sick of the Snow White heroines all the time. And so um, <clears throat> I knew she was doing something different. I started doing a lot more research in the period. And I ran across this image of two aristocratic women having a fist fight at a country party over basically over a man. Uh, it was a wife and a mistress. And from there I started, that was the, the opening. And that was the, the hole that I dove into. And I found all of this amazing other research that I, I, I'm, I don't understand why it's not huge and widely publicized because it's incredible. There were some incredible women doing incredible things. And they certainly were. And I, I'm going to go ahead down that rabbit hole as well and do a little bit of research of that on my own. Rebecca, you also found women who were doing unusual things. Tell us more about the map colorist. Well, it was not uncommon for women to be colorists um, and even children. So there were various levels of colorists. There were those who were like, okay, this is exactly the way you must color the map and we will pay you a very small amount of money. You do that in your house as a way to supplement your income. Um, and then there were a very few who became quite famous and, and um, they of course made more money. They embellished the maps with gold and silver. Um, and so I decided that I didn't find anything of a famous map colorist woman, but why not? As we know so many times, women who do things are just left out of the history just be simply because they were women. So I, and, and in fact, there were women involved in um, the map publishing industry. Often they were in charge of the publishing house that they inherited when their husbands passed away. So I decided that it wasn't out of the realm of possibility. And so um, I decided to have a gave away for how my character Annika could create a map and how that might come into the world. And yet there are things that happened because she was a woman that my, my ending is not as unambiguously happy as Edie says. <laughs> uh, CV, let's pick up on that theme a little bit and go, but go to romance because uh, you like political thriller romances. So talk a little bit more about Token of Betrayal and how some of the themes that we're touching on here, women, uh, romance as a genre, play in your world. Wow. My book is actually not a romance. Um, the second book is more of a romance. And um, actually with that book, The Betrayal of Trust, is actually a love story that's true. And it's one of those love stories that when I read it for the first time, I was like, how do people not know this? You know, people know about Cleopatra and Mark Anthony and, you know, you Edward and Wallace Simpson. And this is an amazing, it's an amazing romance story. So I'm really excited to bring it forward because, and very, very strong. Uh, heroine. So I don't want to tell too much because it's a pretty amazing <laughs> story. <laughs> well, in CV, you have that, you have in Unlocked, you have a, a love story in Unlocked that is part of that same world. 
Yes, I do. <laughs> Let's, let's have Linda talk a little bit about Unlocked. And I, I just want to say that our viewers are absolutely loving this. They knew nothing about Fort Snelling um, and how important that was and how all of your stories are coming to play are interesting to each of our viewers. Linda, let's go back a little bit to Unlocked. Okay, Unlocked is an anthology of short stories that the Paper Lantern Writers put together. It came out last October. So if you are interested in all of our what we have to say, we each of us have a story in this book. Um, I know CVs has related her story, and so is e Edie's. Uh, mm -hmm. So is Rebecca's, huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay, and mine is also related to, mine is actually a bridge between two of my novels, one that's not out yet, the one that's coming out. Uh, but yeah, so this is a good place to get a little taste of all of our writing. <laughs> it's available now. So let's go back now to, the, thank you for that. And they could get that where? Facebook, I'm assuming? or yes. uh, uh, in uh, Amazon. 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 And on Amazon. Um, Barbara Conry, who is joining us, says, if only she knew how to read a map, that would be helpful. <laughs> so, you don't uh, need to do that to, to read my novel. <laughs> so we're going to refer her back to Rebecca's book for that. Um, Linda, you write a genre which you talk about as heritage fiction. I'm going to lead us all back through genre for a minute. I didn't know there was heritage fiction. I didn't either. I, when I, <laughs> I, I'm actually making it a thing because I've always said I write stories about my female ancestors, which is very wordy. And so I was actually hosting a webinar and the, the person who was giving the webinar says, oh, you write heritage fiction. I'm like, well, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> so that's what I'm using because everybody knows what it is, whether they've heard heritage fiction or not. They know right away what it is. So it works. In each of your books, you talk about motherhood and sisterhood. You really highlight the women in your life. But it's also about bonding together and what the cultural impact. Would we? Can we go there for a minute? What I found interesting for The River Remembers is that these, these three very different women, and yes, I'm very... I uh, was very nervous about writing from the point of view of a Native American woman and um, an African American woman because that's taboo right now. You're not supposed to be able to do that. But I researched the heck out of it and ran it past a couple of friends and made some changes. And I think it's, it's going so far. People who have read it, early reviews are very positive. So that's good. But I wanted to show that they, I wanted to show their different cultures. I wanted to show how the cultures were different, but I also wanted to show how they were the same. All three women uh, have their place in society that they're struggling with. They have their children that they're trying to build a legacy for. And so my the Mississippi River is kind of the thing that ties my, my book together. For all three of these women, the river is going to see what their, their past, their present, and their future. And the river isn't going to change, but their lives are changing because this is set at the time when the um, white people are coming in and set their fort right on the holy space of the most sacred space of the Dakota people. And then they're pushing them all off the land. And of course, that's a problem. <laughs> so trying to get that all right and telling the point of view, telling the cultural uh, aspects from the right point of view was challenging, but still showing that, that we have a lot in common. <laughs> Rebecca, let's continue on with genre. How did you find your way to historical f fiction and even between it to your period of time? Um, it really was because of my first book, uh, The Lines Between Us, which was which is set uh, in the same time period, but it's it's actually a dual timeline, but I even counted the pages once. 70% of us is, is historical fiction and the other 30% takes place in 1992. Um, 
And the idea for the story, I studied um, Spanish language and literature in grad school. And the idea for a story came from what were called the honor plays in the 17th century um, in Spain. Spain, ironically, both Spain and the Netherlands called the 17th century their golden age, even though the, they were very, very different societies, which had been at war for 80 years. Um, but uh, in these honor plays, it's the case that um, somehow a woman has stained the honor of some man, her husband, her brother, her father, um, often because she was raped. So they don't ever really follow that through in those honor plays. Um, I, well, sometimes she is killed, but often she isn't, but it's only because of the mercy of, you know, the father, the brother, the husband. I wanted to find out, I wanted to explore what, what, in that situation, what might happen if the woman had her own agency, um, what she would do to escape this danger. And that that's sort of how I fell upon that time period and then thought, I like this time period. It's interesting. And not a lot of people write about that time period. A lot of historical fiction writers don't. If they do, it's in England. So um, yeah, that's how that happened. Uh, Edie, the same question. How, oh, how, how How'd you find that particular period of time? Oh, well, mine, mine is a lot more mercenary. Keeping <laughs> <laughs> uh, it real here on Launchpad. Yeah, yes. Um, I really wanted to write historical fiction uh, it, because history is just a huge passion of mine. Um, I believe that it's in the same way of science fiction, fantasy, where you can use your world building aspects to tell a story about today. And you can use those as a buffer in a way that uh, contemporary fiction, you, you it might seem a little too on the nose, but you can allude to so much with just your setting, the conventions of the time. So uh, I wanted to, to write historical. I found romance and I found that it fit very well with me that I have a framework of, of expectations that I have to meet. There are a lot of reader expectations in romance. It is the number one most uh, best-selling genre of books, uh, period, the end. It's not, it's not close. And with historical romance, the number one time period is Regency. So that's how I got to the Regency. Um, I'm actually a lot more attracted to the Georgian aspect, which is just a, a couple decades before it is when people are wearing wigs. And if uh, anyone else has read some Georgian romance, a lot of times, uh, because nowadays we find wigs and men powdering their faces and applying rouge is to be, is not as attractive to us as modern women as it was at the time. Uh, so a lot of times you'll read that they like leave that off and, and kind of dance around it to say, oh yes, I understand that that was going on, but it's, weird to us as modern readers. So I stuck with the Regency because it was the most profitable. Um, so I moved a lot of my, I moved all of my historical information just ahead a hundred years, but it also allowed me to explore the different changes that happened in the sport of boxing over that hundred years and allowed me to show that as the sport of boxing started to get bigger, the portions of women who are able to participate declined. So in the early days, women boxing was not that big of an issue. And in fact, we had 
Elizabeth Wilkinson Stokes owned her own amphitheater. She issued her own challenges. She made just as much as men did in the prize fighting ring. She was the headliner. She was not one of the undercards. And she did this amazing work. But I can take that as the background of my story and put it forward 100 years into the 1800s. And all of a sudden, you have someone who is just as good. So in my second book, The Boxer and the Blacksmith, the boxer, the titular boxer is Bess Abbott, of course, Bess after Elizabeth Wilkinson Stokes. And she's a <laughs> professional boxer and she's the best, The she's London's championess, which is also what Elizabeth Wilkinson Stokes called herself. And I use that framework, but then putting it into a smaller pool. So now all of a sudden she's a big fish in a small pool. And how does that work? And what are the constraints of her gender and the world as she's struggling to have this career? So we, I love that we've nestled this in terms of some of the business and you are a marketing collective. So I'm gonna talk about that in just a minute, but CV, how did you find your way to this period of time and this particular genre? Well, I've always been a historical fiction fan, even when I was younger, because I always found that um, I never really liked history class, but it's fun to learn about history when it's fictionalized. So I've loved it since I was in high school. Um, this particular um, era and place actually is because um, I'm writing about my uh, family. And so I discovered them when my son was doing his genealogy report and the story was incredibly fascinating. And I didn't even believe that it could possibly be true because it read like a novel. <laughs> and so I went and purchased books from Jersey and found out that there was a whole lot more to the story and it was a whole lot more fascinating. And so that was when I decided I was going to write about it, but it took me a long time to get to it. <laughs> But it's very cool that you actually went to Jersey and visited your family homestead, too. Yes. That's very cool. Yes. <laughs> so. so there's family stories uh, across the board. Let's talk a little bit more about um, marketing. Let's talk about the um, paper lantern writers, because I think that's one of the toughest things for those of us who really would just love to write all day. Yeah. Exactly. So um, why don't we each talk a little bit about our marketing journey, if you will. And Linda, why don't you lead us off, please? Okay. Well, I when I started with my previous book, The Aloha Spirit, I knew that I wanted to get a, a bigger reach. My prior, I have like six books out, and I hadn't gotten the reach that I wanted to get the word out, right? And I was having trouble doing it by myself. It's very difficult to get out there by yourself and to build any kind of visibility on social media or wherever. And I had originally started... Uh, let's see, 2019, I went to a session at the Historical Novel Society convention about um, creating a, a collective. And I thought, oh, that's a fabulous idea. And so history will tell you. <laughs> um, uh, CV and Edie were both at the meeting when I went to our North, Northern California branch meeting and said, we need to do this. And so we started out with five members and Rebecca joined us the following year. Uh, we now have 15. And we work, uh, we spread the news of each other's work, book releases, events and things on social media. We speak at conferences, we do podcasts uh, to get the word out about our books and other people's books. And it's like, it's true that together everyone achieves more. When we hear paper, paper Lantern Writers, you go to our website, paperlanternwriters.com. You can see everything that we're doing, all of our books and everything is there. It's a much easier way to 
market than to just do it by yourself. And for anybody who is interested in historical fiction, your Facebook group and all that you do on Facebook as well, uh, Shine with Paper, paper Lanterns. If shine I with Paper Lantern Writers, that's correct. The that. uh, purpose of that is to connect readers and writers of historical fiction, and it's been incredible. And, and it's a fabulous place. I, I don't follow it as much as I used to, as I've gotten a little bit busier with marketing, et cetera. But it is always a very fabulous place for me to visit. So I'm so glad you do what you do there. Um, amazingly, we are almost out of time. So I want to do a little lightning round and uh, start with CV. What have your characters taught you? Well, I think that the most important thing that I find it's not necessarily what my characters are, but um, learning from this period is like, we never know what the next day is going to bring. And, you know, we see that with COVID it's like one day the world is normal and the next day everybody's locked up. It's just the way it is with history. And so that's kind of what I explore so that you see how characters with the, the change in government and things like that, your life could, change in a heartbeat. Rebecca, same question. How have your characters changed you? I think what I've learned from my characters is that the dreams that you have as a young person maybe didn't pan out at this point in my life, but you can still look back and say, oh, I had a happy life. And I think that um, that's, that's valuable instead of like, well, I didn't accomplish these things that I thought maybe I would, but, but look what I did accomplish and I've been happy. So perspective. I like that. Edie, what have your characters taught you? Uh, my characters are very true to themselves and um, are unapologetic for it. And I think what that's taught me is that the people who love you will support you and stay with you regardless. Beautiful. Last but not least, Linda. Uh, if you look for women's voices in historical fiction, you will find some amazing ones. <laughs> This has been a wonderful episode. Each of our comments uh, from our listeners, uh, Barbara Conway, Ann Beggs, Michelle Ann Waite, um, I think Denise Burt is with us. Uh, we just have a bunch of uh, folks who have spent the time with us. Please uh, follow these amazing authors. Edie Kay, her latest, The Vice Counts, Re Vice Counts Vengeance. Uh, Rebecca <laughs> DeHarling with The Map Colorists. CV Charity, with, uh, who also goes by the name Charity. Um, Token of Betrayal. And Linda Eulisite with The River Remembers. Thanks to each and every one of you. And thanks for being with us here on Launchpad. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye. This episode is copyrighted by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you for visiting with us on Launchpad.